everyone, and welcome to the Finance Z podcast, episode 14. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Jim Rogers. Mr. Rogers has had a very interesting and fantastic career in finance. A little background info about Mr. Rogers. In 1973, Mr. Rogers helped co-found one of the greatest hedge funds of all time, the Quantum Fund. From 1973 to 1980, the Quantum Fund portfolio gained 4,200%, while the S&P advanced only about 47%. The Quantum Fund was one of the first truly global funds. In 1998, Mr. Rogers founded the Rogers International Commodity Index and has been known to many as a commodities guru. Mr. Rogers is also a writer, releasing multiple books on commodities and his global travels. Today, Mr. Rogers and I will be talking a little bit about his career in finance, contrarian investing, his thoughts on the current U.S. and global economy, commodities, market bubbles, and his journeys around the world. I am beyond excited to talk to him. So without further ado, Mr. Rogers, welcome and thank you for joining the podcast. I am delighted to be here, Logan. It's my my honor, my pleasure. So to jump into our conversation and before we go right into our today's topics, I'd love to hear your story and how you got into finance, the hedge fund industry, and how did that eventually lead to the founding of the Quantum Fund? Well, when I was in university, I was going to go to law school and medical school and business school. I mean, I was a confused young man, like many people in university. Um, and then I had a summer job, which happened to be on Wall Street. And I had the job that liked the guy and the guy liked me. So he said, come down here and work for us for the summer. And I did. Uh, and I fell in love because here was a place that would pay me to do what I loved, which was to know about the world. I mean, I didn't know enough about myself at that time to know that that was my passion. I do now. Uh, Many people never really understand their own passion, but here was a place they would pay me if I went down there and if I got it right and I knew about the world, I could make money and I could make a lot of money. I would have done it for nothing if I could have afforded it. And so I wound up on Wall Street. When I went to Wall Street, I didn't, I knew it was in New York. I knew something bad happened in 1929, but that's about all I knew. I didn't know there was a difference in stocks and bonds. Um, I mean, I found out pretty quickly. Uh, and I didn't go to law school. I didn't go to business school. I didn't go to medical school. I went to Wall Street. That's great. And, you know, most people know you as one of the founders of the Quantum Fund that generated a return of 4,200% in a matter of eight years. Uh, how were you able to achieve, achieve such incredible returns during 73 to 80 when S&P was fairly flat? What strategies allowed you to make such strong and consistent returns? Well, that was actually between 1970 and 1980. Yeah, the fund officially started in 73, but we'd had a predecessor fund. Uh, well, we loved what we were doing. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else with my time. And we used a lot of leverage and we got it right. I mean, we we got it right more than we got it wrong and using a lot of leverage. And we invested all over the world, which very few people did in those days. We sold things short, which was not very big in those days. Um, We did a lot of things, which are now much more confident, uh, much more, uh, you know, more people do these things now, but not then. I remember once I went to a, party in 1974. It was a huge bear market going on. And a lady said, oh, you know, what do you, where do you work? I said, well, she said, on Wall Street. And she said, oh, gosh, things must be terrible. And I said to her, no, no, things are great. I'm short. 
Well, she looked at me up and down, and I could read. She was saying, "Well, I can see your shorts, your damn fool. What the hell does that have to do with it?" And he didn't even know what short selling was. Short selling was that unknown still in those days. I mean, just more people know about it now. But no, we were doing everything and loved it and used huge leverage, and and it worked. That sounds great. And uh, now I want to move on to our first topic of our discussion. And I like to ask him questions about contrarian investing and what you believe are key attributes to a great investor. Uh, you've been kind of known to be a contrarian investor. So I, I was curious if you could help explain for our younger audience, how would you define contrarian investing? And did the quantum fund practice contrarian investing? Well, contrarian investing, it's, it's, not, it's not quite, I mean, I think people don't quite understand it. Uh, if you do something that other people aren't doing, uh, they call you a contrarian. Uh, you know, if everybody says the sky is blue and you look out the window and see it's not blue and act accordingly, they call you a contrarian uh, because you're doing what other people are not doing. But it's not it's not as though somebody sits down and says, OK, I'm going to be a contrarian investor. But by do by the nature of doing things that most people don't do, they call you a contrarian. Now, Things that are cheap, for the most part, will make you a contrarian investor because by definition, it's cheap because nobody's buying. Nobody's paying any attention. Nobody cares about it. So that's all contrarian investing is, just doing things that other people don't do. Uh, But that's often key to success. If you follow the crowd, very few people in any walk of life are uh, successful. But if you just find something that's cheap, by definition, people are ignoring it. It wouldn't be cheap if people weren't ignoring it. And so that, that they then call you a contrarian. But it's not as though there's some book that says this is how you become a contrarian investor. If there is, I don't know it. So you could kind of say contrarian investing is really when an investor is trying to look for value in a security or market to basically move away from the consensus of the market and look for what is being ignored. Yeah, I don't know which comes first, ignored or what. I mean, if I find something cheap, it's probably being ignored. It wouldn't be cheap. So uh, which is first? It's cheap because it is ignored or it's ignored and that makes it cheap. doesn't matter. If you find something cheap where there's positive change taking place, you will become very successful. Or if you find something very expensive, where there's negative change taking place, you can sell it short and will be successful. Now, I've I've heard personally from friends, uh, family, and you know some of them are contrarian investors. They like to describe themselves as contrarian. Um, from your perspective, do you think being contrarian, like contrarian investing, is better compared to typical investing strategies like um, buying and holding and then selling when it's uh, when it's at our high. Logan, Logan, it doesn't matter what whatever works for you. That's what you should do. I mean, I once worked for a guy who was a phenomenal short term trader. He basically didn't know what he was trading, didn't care. He knew IBM was a big company. It was in computers, but he didn't know much more than it didn't care. But he could buy and sell and buy and sell. And he did it for decades extremely successfully as a short-term trader. That was not my style at all. I cannot and could not do it. But there are many ways to be successful in investing. You just have to find your own way, whatever it is, and then pursue it. 
Great. Now, in uh, general, what key attributes do you think makes a great investor? Making money. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> being, being able to make money. And then they, they say, oh, he's a great investor. He makes money for some reason when he, when he, he, he only buys stocks that go up. Well, that's all you got to do is buy stocks that go up and you will be a successful investor. But as I said, you know, everybody has their own way. Um, when I first went to Wall Street, I assumed that everybody knew what they were doing. They were older, more experienced, better educated or whatever. But I quickly found out none of them knew what they were doing either. Uh, so I stopped trying to copy other people and I started trying to figure out how I could find things that would make money. And if you find things, once you, some, there were some guys, they had a little group of them. None of them had graduated from high school. They were all wildly successful. So they had to have lunch once a month. The non-high school graduates uh, on Wall Street, successful Wall Street. So it doesn't matter. You can go to business school or you can drop out of high school. As long as your stocks go up, people don't care. They say, wait a minute. You know that person that where the stocks are always going up, bring her over here. Let's talk to her some more. That's all they care about. That's what a, being a successful investor is. Got it. Well, I've heard um, when you're analyzing, let's say, a stock or a company in general that you want to go long in, for example, um, there's the qualitative side and the quantitative side. So quantitative is right based on the fundament fundamentals and the qualitative is more like the management team and how what you see the future of the company is. Did you guys focus on either of those sides or were you mostly quant focused? No, no, everything. If you, <laughs> there's no answer to your question. If you want to be a successful investor, you need to know everything you can. Well, if you're a short-term trader like the guy I mentioned, that's all he needed to know. He just watched the tape and the tape would tell him how to trade it. Uh, we were different. I was different anyway. I needed to know everything I could about the competition, the government, the laws, you know, the, the suppliers, the, the uh, customers, everything uh, in order to be successful. And the thing about investing is, you know, it's a, it's a 3D puzzle. It's, it's, you go in every morning and, they, and here it's, everything is there in place. And then they change the puzzles all day long. They change the pieces all day long. Because the world is always changing and something is going, and you have to stay. In the way we invested, you had to stay on top of all of that in order to know what was going on in order to be successful. Great. I, I want I'm, you to know, Logan, this is not easy. I mean, it sounds yeah. easy. Everybody says, oh, I could have bought Apple. Ha. Huh. If it's so easy, everybody would have bought Apple and everybody would be rich. No, it's not easy at all. Very true. Great. Now, I want to transition to uh, more recent news, particularly your views on the U.S. and global economy and capital markets. So to start off, uh, what's your view on the current global economy and markets right now, given the recovery from COVID and the ma massive government fiscal and monetary support from the Fed? Say that? Oh, well. What's happening now has never happened in recorded history. You have all the central banks in the, well, many central banks in the world printing staggering amounts of money, borrowing huge amounts of money, spending. Never in recorded history anyway have you had so much money flooding into the markets. And this, of course, is producing higher prices for many things. Um, you know, if you 
get a lot of money. It takes a long time to build a bridge, but you can go online and you can buy IBM in five seconds or 10 seconds. And that's what's going on. There's all this money floating around and it's going into financial markets. Um, it's never happened on this scale in recorded history. We've had bubbles before. We've had big bull markets before, but we've never had such staggering amounts of money printing and it's going into the financial markets. Great. And now I want to jump into market bubbles. You've kind of been talking a lot about that in the news. Um, uh, so before we dive deeper into those subjects, could you explain what a market bubble is? How does a bubble form and usually when and how does a bubble pop? Um, well, that's a very good question. We've had many bubbles throughout history and all sorts of things, assets, I guess. Um, and they usually, the, the, the definition, I guess, is where everything is skyrocketing and is very, very expensive. And think, you know, Apple goes up every day. Well, that's not normal in markets of any kind. Um, if lumber goes up every day that, and it goes up skyrocketing amounts and the highest in history, that is not normal. Uh, when everybody is saying, oh, we must invest, we must. When you go to the dentist and the receptionist wants to talk to you about investing, Chances are you're in a bubble or you're nearly in a bubble uh, or a bubble is forming. Uh, and it's when on historic bases, things are very expensive. Everything gets very expensive. And many, many, many new people come pouring into the markets and they all say how easy it is and how much fun it is to make so much money. Uh, they do have little idea of what they are doing or the history of markets. But they're all there. Um, you've heard of things like manias or the madness of crowds, perhaps, you know, when people get all excited and want to go to war. That's a mania. That's insanity. But it frequently in history, whole nations have gotten very excited and wanted to go to war. Oh, well, the boys will be home by Christmas. We'll, we'll show them. We'll show those evil foreigners. Well, that's a mania. That's a bubble. Uh, it always, they always end badly, no matter what the bubble is. With every bubble in history has eventually popped. A lot of people have lost a lot of money, and it will always be that way. There's no way you can change human beings. You know, going back to your example about going to the dentist and, you know, the receptionist talking about, um, uh, investing. Uh, I remember I, I was pretty obsessed with learning about the Great Recession back in 08. And my father actually told me a story about how he went to Home Depot one day. And basically, uh, one of the workers, he, he started talking about how he owned four houses. And like in the Bahamas, and then in New York, and my dad just started looking at him and laughing. And I was like, Oh, yeah, that's definitely a bubble. Well, and the person he was speaking to was the clerk in the Home Depot? Exactly. Someone making maybe like $20 an hour. Oh, well, okay. You're, you're getting there. Your father certainly has, has, has experienced a bubble. That was certainly a big bubble, big property bubble in the U.S. at that time. Not just the U.S., but mainly the U.S. at that time. And that's what happens. Everybody is consumed 
with how easy it is and how much fun it is and how much money you can make. Be careful when you hear all of that. Exactly. And uh, so according to many finance newspapers like Business Insider and the Financial Times, they believe that U.S. stocks are inflated and may be in a bubble given high valuations. Uh, from your perspective, do you agree and believe there is a current stock market bubble forming? If so, could you explain why? Well, yes, there is, uh, it's clear that a bubble is forming. Some of these stocks go up every day. Apple, you know, Amazon, you know, the, I guess you know the names in, in the U.S., you know, Samsung in, in Korea, you know, Tencent in China and around the world. There are some stocks that are just going up every day. Reason that I don't think is a full-fledged bubble yet, and it may never be, but that is because there's still stocks that haven't really popped up and gone to unreasonable prices or historically high prices. Uh, but there are many, many, many stocks that go up every day. There are many people, new people, flooding into the markets, talking about how easy it is. And these are all, this has all happened before. I mean, Logan, this is not, I've seen this movie before and I've read about it many times. This is the way bubbles form and develop. So do uh, interest rates, how, how do interest rates affect money going into the um, uh, financial markets, let's say, you know, government bonds, they offer very low interest rates. How do those interest rates, how can they affect financial markets? Well, if they're low interest rates, it's because there's a huge amount of money buying, being created and going into the financial markets. And, and they're, they buy bonds. That's what central banks do. They buy the bonds. They drive interest rates low. And then people realize, oh, my gosh, there's a lot of money around. I can borrow or access all the money I need. Got to do something with it. And the fast and easy way is to put it into financial assets. And that's what they're doing. Great. And um, in recent news, it's said that the U.S. economy is in a bond bubble. Some say it's specifically government bonds. So could you go into more depth into how this bond bubble is forming right now? And what do you believe the effect will be on the U.S. economy? Bonds have never been this expensive in the history of the world. Never in the history of the world have we had negative interest rates in many major countries. Never in many major countries do you have interest rates that are one half percent or one percent or whatever. You know, even in the U.S., they've never been this expensive. Our bonds have never been this expensive. So <laughs> if history is any guide, when you're making all-time highs, and when I say all-time highs, I mean all-time for hundreds of years, well, that sounds unusual to me, and it's probably a bubble, a bubble forming. Great. Now, I do want to move into a topic that you are very passionate about and very knowledgeable in, which is commodities. Back in 1998, you created the Rogers International Commodity Index, which is pretty remarkable in my opinion. Uh, so I'm curious, firstly, for our younger audience out there, could you explain what are commodities and then go into more detail as to why you decided to create the Rogers International Commodity Index and what does the index specifically track? Well, you know, anything can be a commodity. It's something that there's lots of it. and it, There's not much differentiating it uh, from one one to another. For instance, cotton. Uh, cotton is cotton, period. Uh, with with companies, if you go to work for an employer, some employers have different trade practices, employment practices, et cetera. But cotton is pretty simple. Cotton is the same all over the world 
And therefore, the price is pretty much the same all over the world, and the uses are pretty much all over the all over the same. Um, and that is partially a definition of a commodity, but now in 2021, or certainly in modern times, a commodity is things like things that you consume to make other things or to eat. For instance, we all eat wheat, we eat corn. Uh, these are things we eat. They're produced and sold in big, broad markets. There's no difference in your corn and my, not much difference in your corn and my corn. Likewise, oil, something you can use. Oil is pretty much the same everywhere in the world. Copper, pretty much the same everywhere in the world. It's, it's produced and used in the production of other things. And that, in a simple terms, is commodities. And then could you go into more depth as to um, what your Rogers International Commodity Index is and what does it specifically track? Well, Logan, in the 90s, I came to the conclusion, the late 90s, that we were about to have a bull market in commodities. Again, we've had many in history, not some magic about it. Um, and I wanted to invest in commodities, but I was about to go off and drive around the world for three years. So it's pretty hard to invest in anything if you're off driving around the world for three years. So I figured I would invest in an index, a commodities index. In other words, a basket of commodities. But I looked at all the existing, there weren't many, but existing commodity indices, and they were all hopeless. I wouldn't put my money into any of them. They were so badly constructed. And that's because nobody cared about commodities for a long time. So I had to come up with my own index for my money. And I wanted to make sure it was something that was sound and reasonable. And I wanted it to be something that would reflect the cost of being alive, the cost of doing business around the world and around the world. For instance, the commodity indexes at that time didn't have things like uh, tea or rubber or many things that many people in the world use all the way at, at the time. And so I had to find and to come up with my own index of what people use to be alive or to do business around the world. It was broader. It was over 30, it was over 35 commodities. It was much broader than the others, and it was international. It had things which traded in places like Asia, which none of the, uh, the existing commodity indices at that time even bothered with Asia, et cetera. Got it. So clarify me if I'm wrong, but basically your index would consist of commodities such as gold and oil and you saw value in them. So you were like, I got to put this together because those are an index. It has nothing to do with value. I mean, the Dow Jones Industrial Index is a basket of stocks. And if they go up, the index goes up. They go down, the index goes down. Nobody's making a judgment saying, oh, these are goods companies and good stocks that we want to buy. It's just a basket that is representative of the, of the U.S. economy in this case and the U.S. stock market. Nobody's sitting there saying, oh, these are good stocks. Let's put them in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. No, 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 no. And likewise with a commodity index. You're not saying, oh, my gosh, I'm bullish on rubber. So let's put rubber in the index. No, no, no. You just put the basket of what people use into the index, and then that's a reflection of what's happening in the world. 
There's no stock. There's no qualitative selection at all. It's just you put together the basket of what it takes to be alive in the world. And that's in the index. And if it goes up, fine. If it goes down, fine. Got it. Okay, great. Thank you for clarifying. Um, So, you know, I think a big question to ask you is why are you such a big advocate for commodities and how does commodities compare to typical investments like stocks and bonds? Well, if you are alive, it's hard to avoid commodities. I mean, many investors never, ever, ever invest in commodities or know anything about them. But no matter who you are and what you're doing, commodities are part of your life, whether you know it or not. And from my view, if you're an investor, you need to know that. If the price of copper goes up, it's going to affect many companies, whether it's automobiles or utilities, whatever it happens to be. And so you should know about commodities to be a, a successful investor and to be alive. You know, if I told you that the price of farm products are going to go through the roof, you would probably go down and stock up at the grocery store because you would realize, oh, my gosh, all my food is going to go higher and higher in price. And if you don't know that and you don't do that, one day you'll come home and you'll be complaining, oh, my gosh, you know what the price of bread is? You know what the price of milk is? All these things have gone through the roof. But if you had been aware you would have known that and you would have figured out a way to participate. Got it. Great. Now, I want to transition into our last topic, which is your fantastic journeys around the world. So from 1990 to 1992, you traveled around the world on a motorcycle covering over 100,000 miles over six continents. Your amazing journeys were even in the Guinness World Record books. So I'm curious, why did you decide to travel the world and what was it like going from city to city with just a motorcycle? Well, I grew up in a very small village where far away from anything. And if you grow up like that, you probably don't ever want to leave or you want to see it all. Well, I was crazy and I wanted to see it all. I wanted adventure and I wanted to see the world. And motorcycles, for me, are a very exciting way to travel and to do anything. So I wanted to have adventure. I wanted to see the entire world, and I wanted to do it on a motorcycle because I knew that would be the most fun. Took me a long time to get permission. You may not, you probably don't remember things like Red China or the Soviet Union, stuff like that. It was impossible to do things that at one time in, in world history for an American to get on a motorcycle and drive around the world was literally impossible. But I finally got permission. I kept knocking on doors in China and Russia. Finally, they said, okay, and off I, off I went, and I did it. It was so much fun, um, and I did get in the Guinness Book of Records, but Logan, the Guinness Book of Records does not pay the rent. My parents thought it was great, but I assure you, it doesn't help you pay your bills. Uh, but it was so much fun, and I wanted to do it again. And having done it by motorcycle, the next time I did it, I did it in a car. There you go. And, uh, you know, I've been meaning to ask you, out of all the places you've traveled, what were, what were your favorite places to travel to and why? And what was your most memorable experience from your travels? Well, they were all 
great. Uh, you know, when you when you go around the world, if I if I I don't know where you, if I live in Los Angeles and I go out the front door every day, whether I go to the right or the left or straight ahead, I more or less know what's going to happen to me. But when you're going around the world, you have absolutely no idea what's going to be happening five minutes from now, much less five hours, five days from now. It's a great adventure. It's exhilarating. And you're always having new experiences and always learning a great deal more. And that's one of the things I loved about it and why I wanted to do it. But I also wanted to learn about the world. You know, first time I went to China, I was terrified because all my life, American propaganda had been saying that the Chinese were evil, vicious, bloodthirsty, dangerous people. Well, I thought I was going to get shot when I got off the plane in Beijing the first time. I quickly found out that the Chinese were not evil, bloodthirsty, dangerous people. Found out they were hardworking, ambitious, disciplined their children, educated, etc. But if you see the world close to the ground, you're going to learn a lot more about what's really happening in the world. Uh, and that's a very educational as well as exciting and adventuresome way to spend your time, at least as far as I'm concerned. You know, many people would tell me, oh, you're going to get killed. And I might have most people who try something like this, and not that many try, but many of them do get killed or, or have to stop for one reason or another. But my reaction was, well, if I stay in New York, I might get hit by a bus and get killed, you know, walking down the street. But if I get killed doing this, at least I'm going to die happy and it will be very pleased that I pursued the adventure. Fortunately, I didn't get killed, so I'm even happier because I made it and I survived. Awesome. Now, I did read that you moved from New York to Singapore back in 2007. That's a very, very big decision. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm curious, what led you to make this huge decision in your life, and how has it changed you? Well, I had learned early, uh, not early, but earlier in my life from my travels that China was on the rise and that, that China was going to be a great country again. Um, and I would <laughs> lecture and write and broadcast that everybody should teach their children and grandchildren Chinese. Well, then I suddenly had this little girl. Well, what do I do now? I was trying to teach her Chinese in New York and it was working. But I realized that if I was serious, I was going to have to take her to a place where she had to speak Chinese, where she didn't have any choice. And so we packed up, came to Singapore, which is in Singapore, they speak English and they speak uh, Chinese. And it's a wonderfully efficient, well-run country. So here we are. I came here mainly so that my children would know Asia and speak Chinese because in their lifetimes, Asia is going to be the most important part of the world, and Chinese is going to be an extremely important language. Would you say China is a global emerging market? It has emerged. I don't know if you, you know, the China that I saw when I first went in 1984 doesn't exist anymore. You go there now, you get into an international airport in China, and then you go to an international airport in America, and you say, you know, the American International Airport's the third world airports compared to China. The highways, everything. I mean, China is no longer a third world country. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, you know, as a concluding question for our listeners, what advice would you give to young students who have an interest in career in investing or finance? 
Well, if that's what you love, then you should pursue it. Um, and many people will, especially when the bear markets come, will tell you, oh, don't do it. It's a terrible. But when I went to Wall Street, it was terrible. Nobody wanted to go to Wall Street. Um, I went to two universities, both of the universities. People said, forget Wall Street. That's terrible. The professors, the students. But it's what I, unfortunately, I didn't have enough sense to know that Wall Street was a backwater and was a disaster when I went. I just knew I loved it. So I went. Uh, now it's popular, but if you love whatever it is, if you love it, then do it. Don't listen to other people. Do it. And the best way to learn is to go there and do it. Um, you can go to school if you want, but you it's better. I, I'm not much for learning about it, being an investor in school. I would go there and get a job doing it one way or the other, being a trader or an analyst or whatever. And then if you really love it, don't give up. And when the bad times come, especially don't give up when the bad times come, because that's when a lot of people are getting weeded out. Um, and then there's less competition for you. Well, going back to the bad times, do you believe failure is essential to learning and being better at your current job or career? You know, failure is a good way to learn. It's, it's great. I mean, the smart people don't need to learn from failure, but uh, I was not very smart, but I... All of us, I anyway, learn much, much more from my mistakes than from my successes. Um, and I urge people to don't worry about your failures. Do it. Uh, but do it when you're 26. Don't do it when you're 56. It's better to fail early and learn early and then go on to build new successes and, and new triumphs. Um, but don't worry about the failures. Uh, just do them early. Awesome. Mr. Rogers, thank you so much for your time and sharing your wisdom and advice with the next generation of investors. I am sure our audience expanded their knowledge in the fascinating world of finance. Your legacy will live on forever and be appreciated by many in the near future. It was a pleasure hearing your adventure. Well, thank you, Logan. Uh, make sure everybody is very careful and do their homework. Of course. Hey, guys, that's episode 14 for you all. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. It means a lot, and we are grateful for you guys' support. If you like this episode and want to keep hearing future episodes, please drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts by subscribing on your favorite podcast apps. You can follow us for more updates on Instagram at the Finance Z Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode and have a great rest of your day and stay safe.